Shalawan and welcome to the Science of the Covenant podcast on this blessed day of this holy Shabbat. I am Boyce Washington and on the other side of me is Pastor Richard Washington. And while this podcast is going on, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com or if you're watching live on YouTube on a computer or laptop, uh, you can just type a message in the live chat and we will get to your message or comment. We want to remind you we are celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles and it will be ending this week at October the 19th. And we will be live again this October the 19th, this Wednesday at 1 p.m. and 6 p.m. So we look forward to you joining us. Now, if you're ready, I'm going to turn it over to the pastor as we continue the segment on the destiny of disobedience. So, Pastor, I would turn it over to you. All right. Thank you very much. And uh, we want to welcome you again here. And as we continue our series in the destiny of disobedience. So what we want to do is kind of continue where we left off in the sense of uh, the history of his people. And we would ask that you get your Bibles together. And can you move your mic up a little? Okay, and get your Bibles together, and we'll be uh, dealing with a few texts here. And we got a lot of ground to cover. So what we'll do is to try to cover as much as we can this week as we proceed with this subject. Let us pray. Eternal Father, we thank you for another privilege to be able to serve you and to be able to search your word to know what is being transpired. Thank you for another wonderful Shabbat. And as we worship on the Shabbat, we might get a Shabbat blessing that will refresh us enough that as we go into a new week, we can be recreated and renewed and revitalized in such a way we can even do a greater work for thee. So bless my hosts, bless each listener, and most of all, bless our relationship with thee, that we may be the better for it. These and other blessings we ask in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah, and for his dear sake we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. Okay, uh, what we want to do is uh, turn to the First uh, Kings. We want to turn to First Kings chapter 17. And we want to look at uh, verse 1. 1 Kings 17.1 says, And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As Yah Elohim of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And then we also want to turn in the same uh, First Kings to uh, the 18th chapter, and we want to consider verse 36, and it reads in First Kings 18:36, and it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Yahuwah, Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art 
Elohim of Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. And now we want to go to uh, the 19th chapter of First Kings, and we want to consider verses 1 through 3. And here it reads in the 19th chapter, starting with verse 1, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and withal how he had slain the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel, a messenger, <clears throat> sent then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. So what, we, what we're looking at here is when the prophet Elijah showed up upon the stage of Israel's history, the kingdom was at one of its lowest points in its devotion to Yehoah. Even after Elijah showed indisputable evidence that he was led of Yah, there was still rebellion in the heart of Ahab and his wife Jezebel to take Israel in a direction opposite of that which Yah intended. Now, the nation of Judah was taken into captivity under the king Nebuchadnezzar. And as they were taken into uh, the Babylonian captivity, uh, it was prophesied by Jeremiah. Let's turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 25 and we want to look at verse number 11. Jeremiah 25, 11 says this. Here it reads, <clears throat> and, the, and this whole land shall be a desolation and an abomination, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So here we find that the apostasy of Elohim's people, Jeremiah prophesied that they would be taken into captivity for 70 years. Moreover, after Judah was taken into Babylonian captivity, the prophet Daniel and his three companions, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, uh, still upheld their, lawyer, their loyalty to their Elohim and maintain their allegiance to his Torah. Now let us turn to the book of Daniel because after Jeremiah had prophesied that his people, uh, that Elohim's people would go, go into captivity, we find that Daniel, he was, in, he was one of the captivity prophets. He was in, in the captivity of which Jeremiah had prophesied. So we want to turn to uh, the chapter Daniel, chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1, and we want to look at uh, the first verse, Daniel chapter 1, and verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem, and, besieg and besieged it. So here we see it was under uh, the king Jehoiakim, he was the king of Judah, 
And Nebuchadnezzar at that time came to Babylon, and he took Jerusalem, and he took it into captivity. Now, in the same chapter, what we read in, in uh, Jerusalem and in, in Daniel, we want to also look at verse number six. The Bible says here in Daniel one six, now among these were of the children of Judah. Okay, so it's pointing out that Judah was taken under Jehoiakim, who was the king at the time, but it's pointing out that uh, the children of, uh, of, of Judah, and it's pointing out particularly Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And verse 8 says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested the prince of eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So what do we see here? Here we see in them unswerving evidence that even in a strange land under adverse conditions, their integrity to their unseen king and creator shine as a beacon light amidst the moral darkness which surrounded them. Now, now, we must understand that when Nebuchadnezzar brought them in from Jerusalem, there were thousands that he brought in. But the Bible is pointing out here that Daniel remained uh, faithful along with his three other companions. So what we are looking at is that uh, we can be faithful to Elohim, not only in times of peace, but we can be faithful to him in difficult times. Now, let us turn to Daniel. Uh, chapter chapter 3, and in Daniel chapter 3, we want to consider uh, verses 22 through 25. In other words, it's pointing out the faithfulness of those in whom were pointed out who were from the uh, nation of, uh, uh, of Judah. Now, notice what it says here in Daniel chapter 3, starting with verse 22. Therefore, because the king's commandment was urgent, and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire slew those men that took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. And then it goes on to say, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished, and he rose up in haste, and he spake, and he said unto his counselors, Did not we cast three men bound in the midst of the fire, they answered and said unto him, King, true, O king. And he answered and said, Lo, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of their fourth is like the son of Elohim. Okay, so what was happening is that the king had made a uh, golden image, and he wanted everybody to bow down to this golden image. And as a result of uh, what they call uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they refused to bow, so they was cast into the fiery furnace. So the king was puzzled that when he looked into the fiery furnace that uh, this fire that had slew the wise, these strong men who had put them in had slew them, but yet Daniel... N not Daniel, but Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego are in the midst of the fire, and yet they were not burned. And then he also saw a fourth person in there. He said, did not we cast in three? 
So in other words, what we are saying is that oftentimes that during the persecution of Elohim's people not receiving the religion or the false religions of the time that he was able to deliver his people. See, uh, what Nebuchadnezzar did when Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah had come into uh, Babylon, well, what, what we notice is that he changed their names. Now, what he did was he, 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 he was changing their names uh, for the purpose of if he had given them a heathen name, then they would no doubt start worshiping a heathen god. But even though he changed their names, they didn't do that. See, he took, he took uh, Shadrach, and he changed uh, Shadrach's uh, name. We have uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay? Now, when you look at uh, these particular names, he was trying to name them the false gods according to what their true name was, but he was going to try to transfer the false god to, the, uh, to take the place of the true god. So when we look at Daniel, he gave his name, which is not in this particular text, he gave his name Belteshazzar, okay? And then he took uh, Hananiah's name, and when he took Hananiah, uh, he gave him the name uh, Shadrach, and Mishael, he gave the name Meshach, and Azariah, he gave the name Abednego. And see, he was trying to match the false gods with the true gods and what their name meant to try to get them to conform. But even in the light of the fiery furnace, the Bible says they, rem they remain true. You can change a person's name, but uh, if you're true, you can't change their character or their belief. Okay, let us go to uh, the sixth chapter of Daniel, Daniel chapter 6. Now, when we read in chapter 6, we want to look at verse number uh, 23. Daniel 6, 23 reads, Then was the king exceedingly glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the lion, up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in his Elah or Elohim. So here we find here when Daniel uh, was put in the lion's den, and this was under, I think, King uh, Darius, and they had a decree in the land that Darius had signed that nobody was to worship any other Elohim other than Darius the king. And so Daniel, he went home, and each day during the time that the decree was made, he would open his window and pray to Elohim three times a day. So they watched Daniel, and then they told the king, did, you, did not you make a decree that only you should be worshipped for 30 days? The king said, yes. He said, but we have one of your men from Judah, Daniel, and he's he's worshiping three times a day to his Elohim, not you. And then Darius figured out what was happening. He knew that the decree that they made was not just to get people to worship him, 
but they were really trying to get Daniel. And when, when they said that, he was sorry that he had made that type of decree because he and Daniel had a good relationship. And so he, he tried to get out of the decree, but they said, Dan, they said to uh, Darius, they said the laws of the Medes and the Pers Persians do not change. You have to keep it. And he struggled with them until almost midnight, but he couldn't, so he had to go through with it. And he put Daniel in the lion's den. And then when he came back that morning and he rolled a stone away from the lion's den, he said, oh, Daniel, is your God able to deliver you? And Daniel says, I was innocent before you, O king. And the lion's mouths was shut because Elohim sent an angel. And then they pulled Daniel out of the lion's den. And when they pulled him out of the lion's den, the Bible tells us that the family of the men in whom plotted against Daniel, they were thrown in, the whole family was thrown into the lion's den. And the Bible says, even before they touched the ground, the lions had eaten them up. They didn't even touch the ground and they were eaten. But it just shows you how if we are faithful, even in times of trouble, not all of the time, I wouldn't say that, but if we are faithful, Elohim can give us deliverance. So this is what we are looking at, is that if ancient Israel had been true to Elohim all the way down to the line, he would have given them the protection and they would have the deliverance from other nations, but they were unfaithful. So after Judah's 70 years of captivity, it was Ezra, the scribe, and Nehemiah, the governor, which led Judah in their pursuit of a new life in Jerusalem. And went, and even amidst Yah's people being free to reorder their lives according to the Torah, they still engaged in idolatrous practices. Consequently, their years of captivity wasn't enough to purge some of them from the abominations which caused them to go into captivity. Now, let us turn to the book of Ezra, in, in the book of Ezra. And in this book of Ezra, we, we want to look at chapter 9, Ezra chapter 9, in the book of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 9, we want to look at verse number 12. Now, this is after they have come out of the Babylonian camp captivity. The Bible says, Now, therefore, give not your daughters unto their sons, Neither take their daughters unto your sons, nor seek their peace or their wealth forever, that ye may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. So what he's stating here, that after they got out of captivity, if they would obey him, he would return unto them the prosperity uh, that he wanted them to have. So... So what were some of the things they, they did after they got out of the Babylonian captivity, okay? We want to look at that. Now, let us turn uh, to the next book, which is Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah uh, are the books that talks about when they came out of the Babylonian captivity, and many of them returned back to Jerusalem. Okay, here in Nehemiah, we want to look at uh, chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. Now, here in Nehemiah chapter 5, we want to look at a, a few verses there. The first verse that we want to look at is verse number 7. 
Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 7 says, Then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, Ye exact usury, every one of his brother? And I set a great assembly against them. So one of the things that they were practicing was usury, okay? And that was not to be practiced among Elohim's people. Now notice what it said in verse verse 10 of the same uh, fifth fifth chapter of Nehemiah. He said, I he said, I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Now, what is usury? Usury was uh, giving your brother some money, and if, if he paid you back, he had to give interest. And Elohim said, this should not be among the brethren that you practice usury or putting on, tacking on interest on money that you gave to your brothers. He said, when we are, we are Judah, we are the family together, and we do not use usury. But coming out of Babylonian captivity, we find that they were still practicing things in, in, in Judah that should not be practiced. So some of them desecrated the Sabbath by buying and selling. Now, let us not only were they using usury, but here in the 10th chapter of Jeremiah, uh, not Jeremiah, but Nehemiah, in the 10th chapter, I want to look at verse number 31. Here the Bible says, in the 31st verse of the 10th chapter of, of Nehemiah, the Bible says, And if the people of the land bring wear or any visuals on the Shabbat day to sell, that we would not buy it of them on the Sabbath or on the holy day, and that we would leave the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. So, so here it is saying here that there were those who was trying to sell on the Sabbath day and those who were buying. But Nehemiah is saying here, and if any people of the land bring any bring wares or anything on the Sabbath to sell that we would not buy of them on the Shabbat or on the holy days, and that we would leave the seventh year. In other words, the seventh year was the year released of which anybody owed you debt, then you released it because this was the laws that he had given to uh, Moses to give to his people, and they were to be governed by these laws. So when they came out of Babylonian captivity, they were breaking these laws by using usury, breaking the Sabbath by selling, and he said, and the exaction of every debt. They were not releasing the debt from those who owed them. The Bible said they should release that debt, and they were still holding uh, their brothers to that particular debt. Okay, and let me see. Um, <clears throat> Now some now now some were putting their brethren in bondage and making their sons and their daughters 
to be servants. Now, when, when we turn to Nehemiah chapter 5, okay, Nehemiah chapter 5, and here in Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 5, it says, Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children, and lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants. And some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already, neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. Okay. So in other words, uh, when they moved back out of Babylonian captivity, where they were going, they found that there were those among them that was having, uh, they were having children, and they were having wives that they shouldn't. And some of their daughters was brought unto bondage already, the Bible says. He said, neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. So they had taken the lands and the vineyards, and because they were in control, they put their brethren in the bondage on those lands. And so he said, all of this, that, that should not be. So even after Ezra and Nehemiah, brought about the necessary formation of a reformation of Yah's people, still there was so much more that needed to be done. Even by the time Yeshua appears on the scene of Judah and Israel had been so scattered as a result of their constant disobedience that Yeshua declared his mission to be to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, let us turn to uh, Matthew. Let us turn to Matthew chapter 10. Now, in Matthew chapter 10, we want to look at uh, verse number 6. Matthew 10, 6 says, this is, this is Yeshua uh, telling what his mission was. He is saying here in verse 6, he is telling his disciples, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he's saying this is what his mission was when he came here, to go to the, to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, let us turn to uh, Matthew 15. Now, in Matthew chapter 15, we want to use verse number 24. So here he says, he sent his disciples to the lost sheep of Israel, and then in verse 24 of the 15th chapter of Matthew, he says, But he answered and said, I am not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So he is pointing out what his mission was. He came to the lost sheep of Israel. He prophesied that the temple in Jerusalem. Now, while he was here, Yeshua prophesied that the temple in Jerusalem would be dismantled and not one stone upon another will remain. Now, let us look at that prophecy because that prophecy has a lot of significance, okay? In other words, because of the disobedience of Israel at the time of Yeshua, what we find is that he prophesied to them concerning 
that which was to take place. Now, we turn to Matthew chapter 24, and we want to look at uh, verse 2, Matthew 25, 2, I mean 24, 2, that is. So in verse 2 of the 24th chapter of Matthew, it says, And Yeshua said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So uh, the disciples were so fascinated with the beauty and the splendor of the temple that they were relating this to Yeshua. But Yeshua prophesied and said, this, this temple was going to be torn down. And when it's torn down, not one stone will remain upon, upon another. So the prophets were raised up by Elohim to rebuke the sinfulness of the priests the pseudo-prophets, the kings, and the people to come back to Yah's covenant. Still, this was not, this was of no avail. No sooner were they reformed, they resorted back into apostasy. So much so that when John the Baptist and Yeshua came upon the scene of Elohim's people, they were scattered about and in need of being brought back to Yah's covenant. While other nations were being blessed as a result of having Israel in their presence, yet Israel was in need of redemption themselves. Yeshua's mission on earth when he came was centered on bringing back together the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, when Yeshua was here, he prophesied to his people concerning the abominations of his desolations. So let us turn to, uh, I think that's Matthew, uh, let me see, uh, Matthew, uh, I think it's, yeah, Matthew uh, chapter 24, and we want to look at verse Verse uh, 15, we want to look at Matthew 24, 15, and it says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. So the Bible is saying here that Yeshua had prophesied about the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel. He said, now I want you to read that prophecy and not only to read it, but to understand it. So in other words, we don't just want to read casually, but you want to understand what you're reading about the abomination and desolation. Now, uh, this is somewhat reiterated in the book of Mark. In the book of Mark, we want to look at the uh, 13th chapter, Mark 13, and see in conjunction with what we just read, what Mark says, because this particular prophecy is in Mark and uh, and Matthew. So I don't think uh, Luke and John records this. So here in the 13th chapter of Mark, and we read verse 14, it says, But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, 
let him that read it understand. Then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. So in other words, he's telling them that when this prophecy uh, is understood and you see what's happening with this prophecy, he says, let them uh, that read it understand and let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. In other words, you don't even want to come back to uh, Judea or Jerusalem. You want to stay in the mountains because something about to happen. Okay, so after Yeshua uttered this prophecy, 40 years later, around A.D. 70, the city of Jerusalem was overthrown by the Roman garrison. During their siege, millions of Jews lost their lives, and hundreds of thousands of them who fled were enslaved by other countries they scattered out to. These scattered Jews formed what was called the Diaspora. Many of the Jews of the Diaspora fled, who fled, found acceptance in other countries where they either practiced their worship of, your, of, of Yah in their tradition or they conformed to the practice of worship of those with whom they assimilated with. Moreover, as time went on, the Roman Empire embraced Christianity, and in doing so, they began to purge anything from their worship that they Jewish. Around A.D. 21, about A.D. 321, under Constantine the Great, he changed their day of worship to Sunday, the first day of the week, to be separated from the Jewish people who held the seventh day to be the sacred day of worship, which was Saturday. Once Rome was established a church as a church, they brought about many changes to what they consider the Jewish Worship. They didn't want anything they called Jewish worship. So under Rome, under Rome's rule, they there there were many Christological controversies. In other words, they argued back and forth about the nature of uh, of Yeshua. They argued back and forth uh, whether or not it was three gods or one, or whether there was a trinity, or whether it was just only one God. They had all of these different controversies in the Council of Nicaea. And when we read the Council of Nicaea, there were all kind of con uh, controversies about how to believe. And these con this council went on for years. So under the Christological controversies which took place, which brought about either tolerance for those who went along with Rome and persecution for those who weren't in compliance with her teachings. Even during the age of the Reformation, of which Martin Luther was considered to be the father of it, he didn't adhere to the scriptures of the indulgences, of the indulgences, 
carried on by the church. See, the Roman church had a lot of indulgences, and an indulgence was that they were doing things that was not based upon the scriptures, such as if you uh, sin, you could pay some money, and if a person died, then if they went to hell, you could pay some money to the priests, and they would get the person out of hell. Uh, there was a lot of indulgences that they had in the church, but they were not indulgences that was based upon the Bible. They were some that the Roman Catholic Church had brought about. So when you read about Martin Luther dealing with these indulgences, he was disturbed by how much corruption that was in the church. And not only Martin Luther, but the people themselves who were in that empire, they understood what Luther was saying because they saw the same thing of how the priests was using indulgences to make money and to build the great cathedral churches that they have. So Martin Luther was trying to reform a church which did not consider the Bible as its main source of authority for the believers. Tradition was placed over the scriptural authority. Even though Luther coined the phrase sola scriptura, meaning that uh, the scriptures alone were to be used to govern the practices and doctrines of the church. They said, that's what Luther said, sola scriptura, everything that we practice and teach should be built upon the Bible and the Bible only. So he says sola scriptura. So if Luther's intentions were to reform the Roman church, his 95 Thesis could not reform a church which puts their traditions over Scripture. If the church put tradition over the Scriptures, then how could Luther reform the church by using the Scriptures when the very Scriptures he's talking about, they put tradition over the Scriptures? How can one reform an institution based upon traditions and the reformer is attempting to bring about reform based upon the scriptures alone. If the church values, if the Roman church values tradition over scripture and the reformer holds the scriptures as the way to purge the indulgences which were so prevalent in his time, in this time, if scripture is subservient to traditions held by the Roman church, then what chance would the reformer have in reforming the church if the traditions of which support the indulgences hold sway over the Bible? The very foundation upon which the indulgences is because of the tradition. How could Luther reform an institution by means of using something diametrically opposed to the Scripture and adhere to the very tradition which establishes the indulgences which is attempting to do away with. While Luther's 95 Thesis could by about Luther's 95 Thesis that he nailed to the bulletin board or the door of Wittenberg, Germany, could 
Elified by could be substantiated by scriptures. The scriptures could not nullify the traditions because traditions was put over the Bible. Luther had 95 things that he wanted to discuss with the Roman Catholic Church. And the position that he had taken was based on the scriptures. But yet, church who held traditions and the traditions upheld the things that they were doing wrong in the church. So how could Luther use the Bible because the Bible was put underneath the traditions of the church that supported the things that they were doing wrong? So there was no way that the reformer using the Bible and the church using traditions could bring about the reformation that was needed. And even though many people support the reformation of what Luther did and the Protestant churches was were established, but yet that Luther was trying to reform a church that did not even consider the Bible because they are the ones that changed the Bible. So how can you reform a church with the Bible in a church that does not uphold the Bible? So even though we extol uh, Luther has been the, pro, uh, 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 the father of the Protestant Reformation, but yet the Protestant Reformation could not reform the church in which Luther was in, so they started the Protestant Reformation. But even Luther himself did not believe in a lot of the things that were Jewish. He put them down himself. So even though the church changed it, Luther did not totally believe in uh, 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 what many of the Jews were doing. So during the reign of the papacy, what we find that during the reign of the papacy from about 538 B.C. to 1798 A.D., Romanism made many alternations of its teachings which were based upon, which were not based upon Scripture, but based upon the Pope's authority over the Holy Writ. Anything that the Pope was said, they were said it was uh, infallible. They put tradition over the Bible. They said that when the Pope speaks, he is infallible. His word is over the Bible. However, there were other groups outside of what we consider the Catholic community and the Protestant community, which rejected the dogmas of, of Romanism. And as time went on, many groups which did not unite with Rome on its traditions came to North America to escape the religious persecution and to gain religious freedom to worship according to the dictates of their conscience. So we'll stop there. So when we look over in Germany and Europe, the religion and the state went together. The state what the church would do. And so what we are finding is that Elohim's true people who were believing the way that the Bible says that when Rome became a religion, began to change, try to change the very covenant that Elohim had given to his people. And as a result, we find that out of that land of Europe and Germany, we find that we have a uh, uh, the sect of the Catholic Church, and we have coming out of that was the Protestant bodies, 
And then the Protestant bodies who rebelled against what the church was saying, they came over here to America. So we'll leave off here and pick up next week of dealing with uh, the, the, uh, the rebellion when it comes to the United States of America. You know, it's interesting because when you look at just about every single religion, is in Christianity, Islam, and even Judaism, that traditions trump the what we're supposed to be doing from the scriptures mm-hmm. and all. And it just seems like basically a lot of these religions, what they have done is taken what they want from it to manipulate and have people do what they want as opposed to doing what the most high wants us to be doing mm-hmm. and all, you know, because every religion, it seems like they take bits and pieces. And then even when they teach you, it's not like they really teach you the whole scripture. They take from it what they want you to know and impress that. And even amongst, it seems like even some of the supposed Hebrews mm-hmm. and all, that they are doing the same thing rather than saying, okay, we need to take this book as a whole and study and read the scriptures as opposed to, okay, I'm going to just take out what I want to give you what I want you to do mm-hmm. and whatnot. Yeah, that's a proper assessment. So what we find out is basically is that all religion is man-made. Mm-hmm. Elohim never gave a religion. True. He gave a covenant, and when he gave the covenant, he wanted to follow the covenant, not a religion. Yeah. Every religion in America and abroad in the world, every religion, mm-hmm. not just one, but every religion is man-made. Elohim yeah. never gave a religion. True. It's nowhere found in Scripture. Because mm. if you find the religion that he gave, you uh, then I'll be glad to follow it. But yeah. he gave a covenant, not a religion. Matter of fact, the word religion... That didn't even come into being until after the scriptures was written. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And then, you know, it <laughs> seems like most religions came about after war. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, uh, with the Roman Catholicism, they went to war to uh, impress yeah. people. Yeah, they the one that had the crusades and all of that, you mm-hmm. know, coming on down through the centuries. That's correct. And I even think, well, didn't Islam at one time do the same thing? Oh, yeah, Islam, they were uh, the ones that was taking Christians and saying, if you didn't submit to Allah, you will be put to death. But if you submit, then you can stay alive as long as you submit to him. And a lot of them, they submitted, but in their secret homes, they uh, continue to worship the true, true Elohim. But to avoid death, you know, they they bow down to Allah, you know. But like I said, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, even though they were in a foreign land under other people, they they still bow down to the true Elohim. Mm-hmm. But many of the Christians, you know, they were straddling the fence, trying to please Islam and Christianity at the same time. Now, I have a question, too, regarding uh, Daniel. I don't know why, but Daniel wasn't thrown into the fiery furnace. It was the other three. No, oh, Daniel was wasn't there. He, I think he was away on business when uh, 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 when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, when they was casting the fire furnace. No, he wasn't in the fire furnace. Oh, okay. I don't know why I thought he was. Yeah, I think sometimes when you look at the account, because he, um, that was under the uh, 
the fiery furnace was, was under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, and uh -huh. since uh, Daniel was one of his top officials, according to some scholars, they say he so he was not caught in that. But see now, when Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah was put in the fiery in the in the fiery furnace, mm -hmm. that was not under Nebuchadnezzar. That was under Darius. Okay. Oh, that was okay. Mm, that was. Yeah, that was on under a different uh, emperor or king. He was under Darius. And was that the same king that uh, put Daniel into the lion's den? Yeah, that was put. He put Daniel in the lion's den, and when he put Daniel in the uh, lion's den, then Azariah, Mishael, and Azariah, mm -hmm. uh, I mean Hananiah, they were they were not a they were not a part of the lion's den uh, situation. And you also said that uh, the king gave them name, changed their names from Hebrew names to names of false gods. Yeah, and if you look at the names very closely, he was trying to identify each of the names with a god with a similar name, uh -huh. in the hope that they would come over to the heathen gods. But even though uh -huh. he changed their names to heathen gods. They still maintain their allegiance and loyalty to the King of Kings. Okay. And we have a question, and it reads, Could you please explain what the abomination of desolation is? Uh, okay, I'm going to answer you that in two ways, two ways, two ways. I'm gonna All right, let, uh, let me see. All right, abomination desolation. Now, let me say that's a study in itself, though. But I'm gonna try to give you a, a bird's eye or a capsule of what what it is. Okay. All right. Let me see. Uh, now, when we consider, let me let me let me get that text uh, uh, in in there that deals with that the abomination of desolation. Okay. Uh, and uh, I think one, uh, we have one text found, well, basically, Matthews and uh, Mark, they deal with the abomination of desolation. Okay, let us turn to the one, well, since I'm in Mark, let me, let me, let me look at Mark, Mark 13, 14, okay. Okay, when we deal with uh, verse 13 of Mark uh, chapter 13, verse 14 says, but when ye shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that read it understand, and let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. So in other words, he said, when you, when, when, he, he said, when you see, okay, the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, stand in a holy place, okay, that they should not be. He said, he that read it, understand it. Okay, now, now I want you to hold that thought because we're going to go to Matthew uh, chapter 24. Okay, Matthew chapter 24. Uh, and we want to look at verse 15. Matthew 24, 15. Okay. Okay, now here in Matthew 24, 15 says, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of the desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso read it, let him understand. In other words, he said, when you read 
read the abomination of the desolation of Daniel. He said, when you read it, you want to understand it. See, a lot of people is reading it, but they're not understanding it. Okay, so whatever we, even Solomon says, with all they getting, get understanding. So now let's try to get some understanding. Like I said, it's a, it, it's pretty broad, but I'm going to just try to give you a bird's eye view and a, a capsule of it. And then uh, maybe you can take it and, and run with it. Now, when we talk about the abomination and desolation, uh, what are we talking about? Okay, now, when we're talking about abomination, uh, oftentimes when Elohim spoke to us, uh, his people about abomination, uh, he was talking about the abomination and worship, okay, how they worship. So, so if he's saying abomin, uh, when you see the abomination and desolation, the abomination primarily deals with uh, false worship. Okay, and I'll, I'll get to that a little bit more. It's dealing with false worship. And, des and desolation means to destroy something. So when you're dealing with false worship and destruction, he is saying that when you look at at, at, at prophecies, see, a lot of times we put the abomination and desolation primarily on Rome. But remember that before Rome came into existence, Daniel was speaking about the abomination of desolation in the book of Daniel. Okay, now, so when we look in the book of Daniel, just Daniel itself, where is the abomination of desolation? Well, let's look at it this way. When Daniel and them came into the courts of Babylon, they came in as hostages. They were taken in captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. And the Bible tells us that when he brought them into ca captivity, that they were under his rulership. Okay. So when they came in up on his rulership, what was the abomination of desolation? Okay. It was this. It was false worship trying to make Elohim's people worship the way that the corrupt pseudo-religions was worshiping. That's, that's what they wanted. Okay, now, so when you talk about the abomination and Elohim, uh, when he speaks about the abomination of worship, he is talking about trying to take the true religion and mix it with the false religion. Okay, now, if you can understand that, that's abomination. Now, when you look up the word abomination, it means something that is so, so vulgar, something that is so wrong that uh, uh, abomination is almost like when you are driving on the highway and you see an animal's guts that has been mashed out by the rolling of automobiles, tires over it. It looks disgusting, the guts and everything. The excrement is all over is over the highway. In other words, abomination is like excrement. Now, I don't think I need to get any more plainer than that. I don't need to get any more plainer. And he says when he see true worship being intermingled with uh, false worship, that is an abomination. That's like excrement. He said he hates that. Okay. And then... When these nations overcome someone, they're going to try to force you to worship. 
the way they want you to. And he said, that, that's an abomination. And and, 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 and and when he talks about the desolation, the abomination is what they're trying to get you to do. And if you don't do it, then the desolation is to destroy you, okay? So when you look at the abomination of desolation of Daniel, it is saying that Daniel them was trying to worship correctly, and because they didn't want to worship the false gods, that was an abomination to Elohim, so they wouldn't do it. So what's the next thing that if you don't follow the abomination? Well, in the book of Daniel, it says that the desolation was that if you don't do this false worship, even though it's disgusting to your Elohim, you better do it anyway, because if you don't do it, then the desolation is coming in. What is the desolation? I'm going to destroy you. How did he try to destroy them on false worship, which was an abomination to Elohim? He put them in the lion's den, and he also put them in the fiery furnace. That's with abomination. So now let's 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 draw it up to let's let's draw it up to Yeshua's day. Yeshua told them that when you see the abomination of the desolation uh, 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 stand in the holy place, what was the abomination of the holy uh, stand in the holy place? That was the Romans garrison surrounding the city of Jerusalem. And Elohim said, when you see them stand in that holy place, you better get out of there. Because they're going to force you to worship the way they want to. And if you don't, we're going to take you out of here. So what happened is that when the A.D. 70 came, according to the prophecy that he gave, and they saw the Roman soldiers there, the prophets was trying to tell them to get out of Jerusalem. Because this is the prophecy that Yeshua said, that if you're in Judea, don't come back down to Jerusalem. And if you're out of Jerusalem, don't come back. And if you're in Jerusalem, you better get out of here. But many of them didn't take heed. They saw the Roman uh, armies coming around those cities. They saw them, but they felt that Elohim was going to protect them. Why was he going to protect them? Because when the Salamic temple and the walls of Jerusalem were built, they were impregnable. Nobody could get in there. But, but Yeshua had told them, you did not follow the covenant, and they're going to take you out of here. So as a result of what happened, they surrounded the place, and the ones that did not come out even after seeing the Romans garrison there, knowing what the prophecy was, because prophets was in Jerusalem telling them. Even the Bible says that uh, a prophet would not depart out of Jerusalem until the Son of Man come. So they knew, but they thought they were going to get back. So when the Romans stood there, what happened? They surrounded the place. The people could not get out to get food, and nobody could come in to give them food. And they, so if you look at the great controversy in other books and the, and the Inquisition and all of that, you'll see they began to eat their own babies because they didn't have food. They were starving to death because the abomination of desolation was that if you don't do what we say do, you're going to be put to death just like the fiery furnace and the lion's den. But we have another way of putting you to, to the death. And so the Jews that got out of there, they began to spread all over the earth and they had to scatter themselves. So the abomination of desolation is false religion trying to be forced upon Elohim's people, and if they don't conform to what he is saying, they're going to be put to death. Yeah, you know, uh, it's just something how history is going to repeat itself because I think those are going to be the same scenarios that are going to happen 
in the last days where you won't be able to get out, won't be able to buy a sale, mm-hmm. and it's going to be difficult probably to eat. Oh, yeah, you know? it, that, that's coming. This rain, uh, a lot of people are developing food banks, and uh, they are storing up food. Some people are storing up seeds so that when they get in the country, they'll be able to grow their own products. And then some people, what they're doing, they are uh, redirecting their resources and taking them out of bitcoins and uh, different uh, stocks, and they'll put them in a, into gold and silver. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people that are doing that at, at this time. But we must not we must not fear. We must still look to him, even in these last hours, for him to give us the direction in which to go. Now, now the abomination of desolation happened previously, and mm-hmm. it's going yeah. to happen yeah. again. Yeah. And it will happen in the future too, as we get towards the the mm-hmm. uh, the, the most highest coming. Oh yeah, it it, it uh, like I said, some prophecies may have two or three fulfillments. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Daniel's day was going on because the reason why Daniel was able to write about the abomination and desolation because he 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 himself experienced it. Mm-hmm. It was down in Babylon, and then when Yeshua came and prophesied, he was letting them know that it's going to happen again. Mm. It happened. It, it was, it, but on the thing about eighty seventy when uh, it happened, that was a minor fulfillment. But in our day, we're gonna get the full fulfillment. And believe me, when the full fulfillment comes, you really don't want to be here. Mm. It's it's gonna be a time of trouble such as this world has never known. We 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 haven't seen the abomination of desolation that is coming. It's gonna rock this planet. Mm. Um, I have. A question that's uh, mm-hmm. kind of off topic. Well, not really off topic. Um, when the scriptures talk about the time of the Gentiles fulfilled, has that happened, or are we possibly in that now? The time of the Gentiles. You know, uh, the, uh, that that's a study in itself, just like the uh, abomination of desolation. Uh, the time of the Gentiles. Okay. Uh, I won't be able to answer that now, but we can look into it because okay. uh, that's not fresh on my mind. I guess the abomination, desolation, mm-hmm. is kind of fresh because I, it was a part of my discourse. But uh, yeah, but when you deal with the time of the Gentiles, uh, that's kind of like a study in itself. Mm-hmm. I, I would have to kind of uh, withhold my comments on that until I can kind of refresh my mind to go over that again. Okay. So I can get you the accurate information. Okay. All right. All right. With that, we will transition to our next segment. Up next is Let's Talk About That. So in this week on Let's Talk About It, uh, I want to talk about divorce because I saw a post on Facebook of a Hebrew Israelite woman who had divorced her husband because he was he had uh, infidelities as well as I guess he was, she said, was abusive. And other Hebrew men were hesitant about pursuing a relationship or talking with her. So I want to get a little bit of clarity on divorce as it relates to scripture. So one of the scriptures I want to talk about, if you have your Bibles, is Luke chapter 16, verse 18. You have it as Luke chapter 16, verse 18. And it reads, Whosoever putteth away his wife and marrieth, marrieth another committeth adultery. And whosoever marrieth her that is put away from her husband 
committeth adultery. So, Pastor, I want to ask if, first of all, are only men the ones who can put away their spouse and and give a certificate of divorce to according to scripture? Because it seems like the scriptures mainly refer to the man as putting away the woman um, in regards to divorce as opposed to the other way too. Yeah. uh, Well, that is true. Uh, That was because of the way uh, society was structured back then Mm -hmm. and where, 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 where it was structured uh, and not only structured, but uh, we find that uh, the Hebrew language is a, is a masculine language. It's not a feminine language. Okay. Okay. What I, so what, what do I mean by that? Let me explain that. In other words, if it's something like Spanish, mm-hmm. uh, Spanish is similar to uh, uh, Hebrew in some sense. And when you deal with the gra- grammatical uh, structure of it, uh, it was interesting. I had a watch one time and down in Mexico, I think they don't go by uh, 12 hours. They go by 24 hours. Mm-hmm. So I had a watch, and I noticed that when the seventh day came, it didn't say the seventh day or Saturday. It said S-A-B, which was Shabbat. Okay. So now what I'm saying is, is that uh, let us say if you had, if you were talking about uh, uh, some people in a room, and let us say you had 99 women mm-hmm. and one man, if you talk about that group, you would not refer to that group as she. You would refer to it as he mm. because you got one male there. So that one male would make the whole thing uh, masculine. Wow. The only okay. way it could be you can refer to a feminine group is that if you had, if, if you had uh, five women in a room and no men, then you could say it's feminine. But if you had, like I said, 99 uh, women and one man, you refer to it as masculine. Okay. Okay. So what I'm saying is in society, basically, the man could go and get a bill of divorcement if he found some unchastity uh, in his in, in his wife. And even in the Old Testament, uh, the Bible says if a man uh, even felt jealous about his wife that she had had an affair, even though he didn't know it, mm-hmm. if, even if he felt that there was something wrong uh, with it, with his female spouse, he could go to the priest, and the priest, they would uh, consider the case, and they would tell him to get some uh, water, not not the man, but they would get some dust off the uh, the floor of the sanctuary, mm-hmm. and they would mix it with water, and they would have the his his uh, spouse to come, and she was to drink the water, and they said if a th- if a thighs right. That meant that she had had an affair, but if it didn't right, then he may have a fit of jealousy out of nothing mm-hmm. because nothing happened to her. Okay, that was one of the laws. Okay, but did this mean that a woman? Did this mean that a woman could not file a, 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 a bill of divorcement like a man? Well, not totally. The reason why I said not totally is because uh, in those societies that we are dealing with. Uh, then what we have is is that the woman could go to the priest 
make that known to the priest. Now, I want let us let us turn into the book of uh, uh, Leviticus. Now, when we deal with the book of Leviticus, it deals with a lot of the marital laws and the uh, sexual laws uh, that Israel was to 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 abide by, and a lot of people. Uh, when they look at what was happening in the New Testament, they they think it's a new law in the New Testament than the law that was in the Old Testament. But when you look at the Apostle Paul, Yeshua, and the disciples, they all was talking about the Torah. They didn't have anything new. Mm-hmm. Okay. They was talking about the Torah. So let's look in the Torah and see what the Torah has to say. So in Leviticus 19, we want to look at verse 20. Now, here's what verse 20 says. It said, whosoever lieth carnally with a woman that is a bondmaid betrothed to her husband. Okay. So she's a bondmaid, but she is to be wed to her husband and not at all redeemed nor freedom given her. She shall be scourged. Uh, she shall be scourged. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. In other words, it's saying if a man lie carnally with someone that is engaged to get married, mm-hmm. it said they both, uh, she shall be, be scourged, and they shall and they shall not be put to death. In other words, they they would not be put to death. Mm-hmm. Now, in an ordinary situation, uh, if they were wrong, they, they would be put to death. He said, because she was not free. She was a servant. She was not free, so they not put to death. Okay. But then when we go further to read, uh, we read in verse, uh, let us say, I believe it's 22. Okay, verse 22 says this. It said, and the priest shall make an atonement for him with the ram of a trespass offering before Yahuwah for his sin, which he hath done. And the sin which he hath done shall be forgiven him. Okay. So, in other words, in that in that particular instance, you know, he could he he could be forgiven. Okay. Okay. All right. But let's go back in the same chapter. We're gonna go back to verse twenty. It says, "And whosoever shall lie carnally with a woman." Okay. This is a person that's gonna lie carnally with a woman. That is a bond made betrothed to a husband and not at all redeemed nor freedom given her. She shall be scourged and they shall be uh, put to death because she was not free. In other words, if a man did this to a woman that was betrothed, and I can imagine even a, a married woman, mm-hmm. he said one of the penalties uh, would be would be death because she was not free because we're reading here uh, she was betrothed to her husband and because she was betrothed to him and was not at all redeemed nor freedom given her she shall be scourged they will whoop her but he shall be put to death now when you look at this kind of in context you would see that she did have some rights Mm-hmm. But it depends upon whether she uh, was a bond uh, a servant or whether she was free. And if she was bond, uh, I guess they would be scourged. And if she was free, then 
that it, it, it would probably be a, a different case. Now, they do have other Levitical laws. They do have other Levitical laws. Whether uh, than going to the scriptures, uh, I'm, I'm just going to quote it. Mm-hmm. It says that if a woman was taken advantage of by a man in the field, then it was different from a woman being taken advantage of by being in the city. If it was in the city and she was taken advantage of, it was looked upon different from the field because they say uh, if she was taken advantage of in the city and she did not holler or scream, she possibly could have got some help. But if she did not holler and scream, rape or whatever, then the consequences may be different than the field because they say if she's out in the open field, even if she yelled and hollered, nobody was out there to, to help her. But mm-hmm. if they found a man, I think he would be cut off from Israel. That would be a penalty for him. But in the city, if she did not holler in the screen to get the help she needed, they may not hold the penalty to the man. But it did have laws to uphold it, mm-hmm. and she could go to the priest. But generally in the culture and what they was in, if the man saw the impropriety of what his spouse did, he could put her away. But the woman had to go to the priest as well, for them to weigh the situation. And if they found out that he was actually uh, in the wrong, that he could be cut off from Israel or that he could get the penalty of being scorched, or a lot of times when you cut off from Israel, uh, that meant that you may be stoned too. Mm -hmm. That was a way of cutting you off. Mm. So you can, so a woman can have some recourse now, it, would the woman still, by scripture, be able to uh, pursue another relationship and get married, remarried? Uh, I, I think you. Sh- I think she could, uh, but I think uh, w- one of the things uh, it all depends on who the woman was. Now, mm-hmm. uh, if 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 it was an Israelite woman and 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 and, a, and it was an adulterous relationship. I think she could go head on and get remarried, but if it's say for instance, if it's outside of Israel, then uh, I don't know if they would permit her to marry into Israel, but she could probably get married uh, to another nation, if, especially if she was a bond woman mm-hmm. that was coming to work the seven years to be free with an Israelite. I don't know if she would be permitted the same rights as one who was an Israelite or one who was in, you know, the tribe of Israel. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but they did have some rights, but, but now some of the rights may not be because, uh, uh, I mean, in a adulterous relationship, that was one thing, but if a woman of another nation wanted to remarry, but it had nothing to do with uh divorce, they could still marry, I guess, in their own nation, or they could marry another Israelite, mm-hmm. just like when Ruth and Naomi uh, uh, offer and Ruth, they were Moabites. Mm-hmm. But when their husbands died, then Ruth and Naomi came back, even though offer she went back to her own people. That they, they after their husbands died, then even though uh, Ruth was a Moabite, she was able to marry into Israel. Even uh, the tribe of Yeshua came through her. Okay, they could they could still remarry. But what you are talking about is divorce. 
Yes, they could remarry, even a divorce, and even a, 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 a divorce uh, foreigner could probably marry another uh, another uh, Hebrew mm-hmm. if 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 she if she conformed to the beliefs of what he had, then she could she could also uh, remarry as well. And I think they got a a, a number of uh, of examples uh, in there mm-hmm. in the Bible to 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 show you that. You know that that after divorce, uh, they they could still uh, uh, marry within the Israelite community. So I mean, as far as an adulterous relationship, is an adulterous relationship is when two married people mess with each other, or is could it be an adulterous relationship, especially when it comes to men? If a man was to mess uh, have relations with an unmarried woman. Is that also considered adulterous? Well, when you look at the word adultery, adultery means uh, to have uh, more involved in it than it should. Just like mm-hmm. one of the common illustrations that I use about adultery to understand it. See, you can be married or unmarried and still be in an adulterous relationship. Mm-hmm. So what is an adulterous relationship? Well, an adulterous relationship is just like in some countries – if you sell olive oil, it has to be pure olive oil. You can't mix it with any other uh, oil. Yeah. And in some countries, they 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 permit olive oil that you can put a certain percentage of another oil, like maybe corn oil with olive oil, but it has to be a certain percentage. If you put too much, they said it's adulterated. But anyway, the term adultery means that you are mixing something that is pure with something else. If you got pure olive oil and you put corn oil in it, that's that oil has been adulterated. Okay, so when you got a, a adultery, wh- what is adultery? If you got a man that is single and a woman that is single and and they cohabitate with one another, then uh, in a in, in a way, if both of them are unmarried, it is adultery because they have not bonded together. But if within the uh, economy, if I'm not mistaken, of Jewish, then they may have to go to that father and give him a diary and, and pay and still become the wife or the husband, uh, uh, the, the wife and the husband of the two who have uh, laid together, even though they were not married. Mm-hmm. Okay. But when they, when they have come together for the, uh, uh, they, after they have known one another in the bed, then they may consider that a marriage. And if he doesn't want that marriage, he may still have to pay that dowry uh, for defiling her, okay? But okay. You, know, you look at adultery within a marriage, which some people call fornication, but uh, but if a person is married, be the man or the woman, they step outside of the marriage vow, then they had a pure marriage, but once you introduce another man or woman into that marriage, just like the... Uh, Corn oil comes into the olive oil and adulterates. It's now adultery. It's now adultery. Okay. Now, when Yeshua, when the Bible said that Yeshua, they brought this woman who was caught in adultery. Now, uh, maybe the Jew who got her, he said he, she was caught in adultery. And so Elohim said, well, uh, Yeshua says, well, if she was caught in adultery, uh, he said, let the person. Uh, because according to the Bible, she had to be stoned. Mm-hmm. He said, well, let the person who uh, called an adulteress cast the first stone. 
Yeah, nobody could cast a stone. Why was that? Because number one is, it was two factors that was missing there. Number one, you said you called in the very act. So if you called in the very act, then you knew the man was there as well. So what was the man, number one? Yeah. Okay. And then number two is that uh, if you actually called in a, in adultery, then the person that called her, let him cast, cast, cast a stone. So why couldn't anybody cast a stone? Because apparently most of, if you caught that woman in adultery, uh, most of all, the one that is accusing this woman, they, they were probably the one that was abusing her. Mm-hmm. So in the adultery's affair, so when he stooped down and he looked up and he saw the woman, he said, where are those thine accusers? And she said, there is none. He said, I don't accuse you either because he knew that the adultery's affair that she had, she was taken advantage of uh, by number one, of uh, the Jewish men, and because they, when they had an affair, they couldn't cast a stone, and then the first offense was that they didn't bring no man with her. Mm-hmm. So if you don't got no man, then you don't really don't have no case. Mm. You know, does, I just wonder too, does Yah looks at adultery with really disdain? Because I know when it comes to his chosen, the children of Israel, Yasharel, um, we have played, I guess what he says, the harlot and adulterated because we have served other gods. And so I just wonder, does he really look at that like he cannot stand it because it affects him in a way, you know, with our union with him? Well, it does. Uh, when you look at the first, and when you look at the Decalogue, the first, uh, the first four commandments deal with our relationship here. Mm-hmm. He said, "Have no other Elohim's before him." Yeah. So whenever we lock up and have any one of these false things uh, or false Elohim's, then uh, it's taking a place for him. And he said he's a jealous Elohim, and nobody can take his place. Mm-hmm. So that's an abomination. That's. Uh, that's that's something that he he would he would he would not tolerate. And then when you go on down, you know, he said, "Don't have any other Elohim's in the heavens above, and the earth, or in the waters beneath the earth." He said, "You you can't make any false Elohim's to replace me." And then when you get to the uh, seventh day Sabbath, uh, the fourth commandment, he says, um, "Well, even before you get to the fourth commandment, uh, he, the third one, he says." I'm a jealous Elohim, have have no other uh, uh, Elohim before me. And later on in the statutes, it, it talks about what was happening if you, if you did. And then when you get to the fourth commandment, he is saying, um, this is my day, uh, and you should not do any work on it because I'm now dwelling among you. And so when you try to change the, uh, the true day of worship to the false, you're not just changing the day of worship, but you're also changing your Elohims to a false Elohim. And that too brings uh, what we will say, uh, discuss to him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so false Elohims has always been uh, a contention with him. Because when you look at uh, the book of Hosea, and it talks about how uh, Hosea had married Goma, and she was a prostitute or a whore. Uh-huh. And uh, he was showing Israel how that when Hosea married Goma, how 
she went astray from him, just like you have gone astray from me. So yes, all 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 of that plays into the equation that when we uh, get another false Elohim, we have divorced him for something that is false. Wow, and you know, we I, I don't think we really a lot of times uh, think about that because you know, just like a jealous spouse, if a man was married to a woman and she steps out, most men are going to be angry about it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, you're supposed to have been the only one. Now it's another one on top of me. And I can see y'all looking at it as the same way. Like, I thought I was the only one. I've been providing for you and doing everything for you. But yes, still, you go and serve and mess around with these other gods. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's other, yeah. you know, it's utterly disrespect. Yeah, that's what it is. And. That's what our series has been on, you know, is that disobedience, you know, you know, the destiny of it. And when we look back at the history, we can still see the history of he for his people forsaking him for other other uh, Elohims of the land. Yeah. That's why they were scattered all over the world. And that's how they scattered all over the world now. True. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Pastor, can you take us to the throne as we get ready to close out for this week? Mm-hmm. Let us pray. Eternal Father, we thank you for another opportunity to be able to serve you this day. Trust that someone has been edified and someone has been inspired, oh Heavenly Father, to be able to live the life that you would have them to live. And as we look at the cross, we can see the sacrifice that Yeshua made. And because of this sacrifice, he gave us a new lease on life to be able to live according to the covenant promises that you have given. Bless my host, bless me, bless each listener, and bless those who will be listening. That the power of your Holy Spirit may continue to make the blood of Yeshua's life a part of our lives, Lord, that we may be washed clean with the word. And with the water of the word, O Heavenly Father, we may be clean vessels to be able to receive the impartation of your Holy Spirit to be able to live the life of Yeshua. And as we do that day by day, Lord, that we may have lives that are conforming more and more to what you want, that when you do come, whether we're in the grave or whether we're living, our life will conform with the life of Yeshua, the Messiah. So forgive us for our sins and continue to guide and direct us. We ask for blessing, O Heavenly Father, from our families. Bless those of us, O Heavenly Father, who have experienced death, sickness, or sorrow, that you would give the comfort of your Holy Spirit to be able to give us a peace of spirit and also a man to want to serve thee even in difficult times, that we can be able to be in submission to the things that you would have us do. Oh, Heavenly Father, we encounter, be it good or evil, that we may know that your hand can lead us to be able to get the final things of life. And rather than get the curse, that you can give us a blessing because we have been walking in obedience to your will. Now bless us as we go throughout the rest of the Shabbat. And when we come into a new week, may we have been refreshed. These blessings and others we ask in the name of Yeshua the Messiah. And for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. We want to remind you this week, this Wednesday, October the 19th, we'll be bringing to a close the Feast of Tabernacles. So come join us at 1 p.m. and 6 p.m. Again, this Wednesday, October the 19th at 1 p.m. and 6 p.m., we'll be bringing a close to the Feast of Tabernacles. So please join us. Mm-hmm.
That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. O ye seed of Yasharel, his servant, ye children of Yaakov, his chosen ones. He is Yahuwah Eloheinu, his judgments are in all the earth. Be mindful always of his covenant, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. Until next week, Shalawan.